So the theme, as I just prayed, is it's this idea of waiting, to, to wait for it. It's there in Habakkuk. Though it linger, wait for it. That there's the thing that is promised to us in life, and we have to wait in this space until the thing is provided for us in life. That so much of life is between promise and providence, right? Promise and providence. And, and this is a very common theme, maybe one of the most common of all themes that we pick up as children even. Like if we were a child, you know that Christmas and birthdays are coming. And you wait for the presents, right? You're not waiting for Jesus when you're a kid, right? You're just waiting for the presents. And so even now when I'm taking Charlotte to, to Target, right? Like I have to be like, no, you can't. No, we can't do the presents now unless there's a Frozen 2 section, thank you very much, Target, that now my daughter will not leave Target. She will live in Target until she gets an outfit of Elsa. So that was our yesterday. But ideally, as a parent on my best days, I would be like, no, child, we wait. We wait until it comes because she knows that her birthday comes and, and she's meant to be able to get something on her birthday, that Christmas comes. She's going to, meant to, I'm sorry, but meant to get something on Christmas. It is what it is, right? We know that when we get older, like when you're a teenager, you see like people having their first love and you're wanting that as well. And so you write poems and emo songs and you know what I mean? Like whatever you got to do because I just really want that love in my life. And it carries with you into your 20s and 30s or 40s maybe. But, but in your 20s, you're waiting for that right job. In your 30s, you're waiting for that right break. And in your 40s, you're just waiting for rest. Am I right? Like you're just like, I wait on the rest, Lord. Please bring it to me one day. Like we're all in this space living between what has been promised because we, we see others that have it. But then also the providence of when it will finally come about in our lives. And this is a tension that every human who's ever lived has had to deal with. And none of us have figured it out. None of us have figured out, like, how to, like, no matter how much we try to build a time machine, we can't get there. And no matter how much Enneagram 8, I'm going to force this into being, I try to put into life, it doesn't happen. Things, like, just get destroyed. Right now, my wife, that's why I'm, I might be checking my phone, not because I want to check my phone, but my wife, she's like, Robin, I got to go into labor this weekend. This baby's too big. This is too much. So we're, you know, eating food, whatever she's got to do for this baby to come. So I, I check my phone to go, hey, I may have to leave middle of the sermon to, to get home because the baby's due any day. Now, here's the difference, though. Things like that, things like birthdays and Christmas there's a date when it will come. We know that in nine months, the baby will be here. Surprise, surprise. We know that Christmas will be here. But you don't know when the thing that you're begging God for will get here. And how often and how long have we prayed for those things to get here and they're still not here? You try to read the Bible verses. You try to read the Bible verses on your head. You try to like, like, do worship as much as possible and get yourself into like a scrambled karaoke mess in your car. Like you're doing whatever you can. God, please just give me the thing. And, and we'll even find ourselves taking control of it. Well, I'm just going to force this. Listen, you can get married when you want. You really can. You're just going to like, going to force it. And then you got decisions to make. Like you can go get the job if you want, 
You're just going to have to force something there. And then you're like, I don't really want to, if I really want to force it. Well, then there's the problem. Like, we have to live in tension as humans. So here's what I want you to do before we jump into this. I want you to picture, just close your eyes for a second. I'm not playing a trick on you, I promise. All right? Every head bowed, every eye closed. No, I'm joking. All right. I want everybody to just kind of take it in for a second. I want you to picture in your mind's eye that thing that you have prayed for, that you feel like you've been promised, and yet you still have not experienced the present of it and the providence of it. So get that thing in your mind. What is that thing that you've been longing for? And it's with that now this morning, I want you to keep in mind. So let's now start and look back here at what Habakkuk has to say. We'll start there. So we find that Habakkuk is this prophet living in the, the um, I'm trying to get my numbers right. He's living in the 7th century BCE. And what we know during that time frame, which would be the 600s, what we know during that time frame is that the northern kingdom of modern-day Palestine, Israel, and Israel was divided into two parts, the northern kingdom called Israel, kind of confusing, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And those are your two kingdoms. They were split in half there through the tribes and through David's sons. And so we find that there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, a hundred years before this moment, was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were this rough, ragged, powerful group of people from the northeast. And they had taken the northern kingdom captive and left Judah there. And Habakkuk is in the southern kingdom. And during this time frame, God's people have become increasingly like the Assyrians. The Assyrians were known to sacrificing their children to the god Murdoch. And you even found that there were these Jewish Hebrew people that were sacrificing their own children. And Habakkuk was sick of it. And they had brief respites of revival through one king named Josiah. But ultimately, the people would just go back to the patterns. And Habakkuk was longing for something true and real and just. Have you ever longed for something true and real and just in your life? Maybe it's how you're treated at work. Maybe you're gay and you find that people have xenophobia around you. Maybe you're a woman and you find that people are bigoted towards you and you don't get the leg up. Maybe you're a person of color and you find that, that you get short change in your interactions. You can only make it so far before you hit the glass ceiling. Maybe you're dealing with the disease in your life at a really young age, and you can't understand why because you've lived as healthy as you possibly can. And maybe it's a divorce that feels imminent, even though you've done all you can to make it work. I don't know what the thing is, but there's probably the thing that all of us in this room are like going, this isn't right. I just want this to happen. Why can't it? Well, that's Habakkuk. And so we find that Habakkuk is terribly distraught over what's happening. And so he then goes to God. And here's what he says in verse 1, or verse 2, I'm sorry. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice, and why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Now, what I want us to look at 
from Habakkuk are kind of like three rhythms that I think are important for us to consider that's here, that I see here. Three things that we find Habakkuk's willing to do because Habakkuk knows what the promise is. The promise is that he is meant to be able to live in a just society, that if there's going to be a just God, there must be a just world. He knows that, but he's not experiencing that. And he's willing then to kind of lean into these things. And the first one we see here, which I think is important for you and me to consider while we live in the space between what was promised and what it's provided is this. We are going to have to learn how to question God. We're going to learn how to be able to question God. Now, this is something that you, and I know I wasn't, like I was not taught to do this growing up. You don't question God. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. So just kind of drill that into your brain and move on. But then you find like all your insides are spilled out because you've been cut up so much that life is so difficult, so hard. So you feel like you're just dragging your body along. You know, Thomas, of all the disciples, gets the worst rap, doesn't he? Like he is, anybody know what Thomas is? You don't be in church, know this. What is it? Doubting Thomas, right? It's just so cliche. It's culturally a part of, of society. And what we say is that doubt is wrong. But what I'd say is doubt is an antibody. And you know that you need antibodies. You, the, the child who will get the sickest is the one who's going to daycare for the first time, right? Or the one that has no other kids around them. And you can try all you want to keep that child in a room eating saltines and then walking out one day and being clean. But as soon as they do that, I don't know why saltines. But anyway, when they do, when they do, I'm sure it's like a John Mulaney pit back in my head somewhere. When they do, that child's going to get sick. Like, you need the antibodies. I don't mean make your child eat dirt, but maybe let your child eat dirt. I don't know. But like, let your child interact with the antibodies of this world. They'll be healthier. Well, the same is true for us. When we spend all of our time, and listen, I know I'm talking to the choir on this one. You're not here because you're like, you know what? I just really am just new to church, and it's so amazing. I mean, you're here because you heard about Christ City. Like, there is a church that lives with intention and talks about doubt a lot. I think I'll go there. Like, that's why you're, I get it. I know. It's not new. Welcome. But we have to be willing to welcome that because God welcomes that. I'll give you an example that I think is a lot of times misunderstood. Many times as parents, we spend our times trying to get our children to do exactly what we want them to do, when we want them to do it, where and how. Amen? That's called target yesterday for me, all right? Child, just do what I'm asking you to do, please, all right? And, and don't send me into like trying to negotiate with the terrorists at this moment. Please just do what I'm asking. Now, what, I, what we want to do is when people push against us, especially a child that's yours, you want to get bigger. You are going to do this, right? Like, and, and at times, you got to go with that one. Like, that's in the back pocket. Sometimes you just got to pull that one out and go, we're, we're going now, this direction. But listen, your child is not trying to be against you because they don't want to be with you. Like, it's so interesting. If, if, I ever, if I ever even give the hint to my daughter that like, you know what? You can be in here. I'm not doing this, that kind of thing. 
what I find is no matter what she's going through, she's like, no. Like, no, I want to be with you. I just want to wrestle with you. She doesn't say it this, this way. It'd be a much more different conversation with a five-year-old. Daddy, I don't want to be against you. I just want to wrestle with you on these matters. You know, like, no. It's, but here's the thing. Children leave the parents and come back to the parents time and again. They're going to leave and they're going to come back. They're going to leave and go, no, I don't want you. And they're going to leave. And soon enough, 10 minutes later, the child's going to come find you because they want to be with you because they know they're not meant to do this alone. And what we have to be as parents, right, are very consistent, like people, rooted, so that our children can kind of like a rubber band go out and come back, go out and come back, and not be shamed into the ground. I mean, there's just like a, a, a parenting tip there that a lot of times we're like, no, I'm going to go get them and bring them back, and you will do what I say from here on. Like, whatever. That'll never happen. Because that child is trying to wrestle with life inside of them. Because here's what the child is trying to find out. How far can I go and you still stay here? How much can I push and you still stay the same? It's embedded in the soul of humans to want to know how far out can I go, but someone stay consistent there. And that's what parenting is. And what that does in a child's psyche it reminds them, reinforces to them that this parent is trustworthy. By your children acting out, this let me put it really blunt, your, by your children acting out, they're actually finding to trust you more. By them acting out and you staying the same and being consistent and being loving and staying there, you're going to find they want to trust you more. And the same is true with God. Listen, we don't disobey or get away from God because, God, I don't want you any longer. We're doing it to find out, God, will you stay there? If I remain unfaithful, will you remain faithful? If I run away, will you stay right here? Because I need to figure this thing of life out. And it's in that doubting, in that running, and God saying the same, that we find that we are met with God giving us answers. Because by Habakkuk doubting out loud, we find that God gives a response. It's found in verse 2. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. By a child running away, they really are looking for relationship. That's what's kind of mind-blowing about it. They're not trying to get away from relationship. They're actually kind of saying, how much can I stretch this relationship? They're almost wanting connection in that way. What's interesting for us is when we're interacting with God and doubting God and asking questions and questioning God, we're not trying to get away. We're trying to find how real are you? Will you be here with me? I guarantee you find the person who never questions God and just shows up week after week and they keep saying those things to themselves, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, you will find a cavernous, hollow connection with God. One that cannot hold up against the hurricanes that this world brings us. You're not gonna make it unless you doubt because unless you doubt, you won't get a response because here's what happens. He gets a response. But the response is this. 
Write it down so you don't forget it. Wait for it. It's going to be a while, but it'll be on time. And you're like, great, thanks, God. That's the response. The response is, okay, you ready? It's like, okay, Habakkuk's going, here. God's like, are you ready for an answer? And Habakkuk's like, yes, yes, please, here we go. And God's like, here's what you do. Write this down. And the next part he's going to write down, which you can read on later, is going to be about how God's going to bring down, right, the, the Assyrians. But then another captives are going to come in, captors are going to come in, called the Babylonians. And God's like, I want you to write this down. The hubris of, of Assyria is going to bring, be, be their downfall. So write this down. And remember this. Make it plain. Pass it on to other people. And one day, hopefully, the Babylonians will come, and then one day you'll get your freedom. And it will not tarry, just have to wait for it. Like, what an anticlimactic, like, response from God if you're Habakkuk. You're like, I got to wait, like, another hundred years to get the thing I'm longing for? And God's like, yeah. Because I think the second thing, though, we're actually finding, and this is important here, because embedded within all of these prophecies that God has given Habakkuk is this one line that God is faithful and God is true. God is faithful and God is true. The second thing we have to be willing to do in these times isn't just question God. We have to rehearse what is true. Now, you may have had a lot of things about God in your kind of what you're given in your faith you know, we have kind of this young faith where the Bible's magic and the Bible's exciting, but then eventually that kind of wears off. And then we're left with having to really dig into what is our faith about? What is this Bible about? That's even why we tried to have certain discussions at our rabbit hole lectures and whatnot, so that we do even do alpha, so that you all can come and go, hey, this, this faith given to me doesn't work as well. I need something more. And so you can dig into it. And what we find in these moments where life is just so much and so difficult, where it's so confusing and brings us down, that you got to go to the thing that you know is true. So here's the question. What is true in your life about God? Like, what are even the shreds of God left in your life that are still true? You know, in... in the Bible, we see this word because there'll be like these moments where something big happens and they will build an Ebenezer. And Ebenezers are stones that are stacked on top of each other. Uh, when I was living in the Middle East in my early 20s years ago, I would drive around. I remember being in Morocco and driving around and I didn't know what these were and they were just these huge stones piled on each other. And you would ask, like, what is that? And they're like, oh, that reminds people whose farm that is. You're like, Gotcha. Like, they don't do fences. They just kind of do piles of rocks. So I'm going to start doing that at different places here in Memphis. I'm just going to build piles of rocks and, like, mine. That's, that's Robin's right there. But it's meant to be a remembrance. And it was very common within the ancient Near East because you needed to be reminded of what was true. Which is why even things like journaling, as 16-year-old-ish that sounds like in your room, listening to pop music, journaling. As, as childish that may seem, it's very important that you write things down, that you rehearse things so that you can re-engage with what is true. Because listen, friends, and you know this, 
the hard times come and it washes away so much of our experiences and good feelings that we have with God. And what you need to be left with is this true moment. This is why marriage ceremonies are so important. Not because you can be treated like a king and queen. It's so that you have a moment to remember, like, this is what is true. We were standing at that place. Now, unless your spouse is, like, psychotic, like, you want to keep trying to make this work, right? Like, I want to go back to this. How do we make this work? What is true? One of the things that, I don't know if they do this on Android, but, like, on Apple phones, they will put together, like, a, a montage of, like, your pictures and put music to it. And the first time I experienced this, like, has anybody gotten this? No? Okay, a few of you. Like, if you have an Apple phone, what they'll do is, like, Apple will just assume, like they always do, right, invading my space, but I always do, they assume that what you want are pictures pieced together of the last year of your life, and then they put beautiful music to it. And at first, you're like, I don't want that. And then as soon as they give it to you, like, I'm in tears. I'm just bawling over my life this last year. Oh, my God, look at this. Look at Charlotte. Look at Suzanne. Look at us. What am I doing? I'm remembering what is true. If you're going to live in the space between what is promised and what is provided, you're going to learn how to question God well and out loud, and you're going to learn how to live with what is true. You're going to have to write it down and rehearse it because otherwise you'll forget what is true. Listen, friends, God is not against you. And some of you need to hear that this morning. God is not against you. God is for you. If you are a child of God and you're sitting here as a human being, you are. God is for you. Just like a parent is not against their child, God is not against you. And just like a parent is not trying to keep all the good things from their child, God is not trying to do that with you. And just like a child the parent, you're going to have to question things out loud and push against things and run away from things, but you're also going to remind yourself of things that God is not against you. And that may be the word that you just need this morning because you're so convinced that life works in a way where God's against you. The third thing I think is really important for us is found in verse four. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Got a text from Suzanne, but she just wants two cups of sonic ice on my way home. So much sonic ice. Okay. Um, the third thing that's really important, I think, to live in this space that we see with Habakkuk. Look at that last line. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Now, everybody from Martin Luther to anyone else since has tried to take this when Paul talks about it and turn it into something that may be that, may not be that. But here's what we know that it is here in Habakkuk. It's trying to, in the Hebrew, what I love about Hebrew is very vivid, right? It speaks in pictures. And so here with the Hebrew, when it talks about a righteous person will live by his faithfulness, they're trying to get across this idea, live, to quicken or revive, resuscitate, resuscitate, right? Like you're trying to do CPR on something. Come on, come back to life. Come back to life. Get up. Let's go. Get up. And this idea, his faith is faithfulness, is fidelity. And what we're saying here is that 
we're trying to learn, or what Habakkuk's being told to do is revive your fidelity. You revive your fidelity. Question God. Go to what you know is true, but also revive your fidelity. And that sounds weird, but I love, I love how those words come together. Because how many of us, without a show of hands, feel like your faith is just kind of dead? And what we do is we want to wait and be like, well, God will do it. And you're like, no, that's not how this works. Just like if you're waiting to fall in love with your spouse again, keep waiting. Like that's what kids do. But adults don't wait for something to be revived. Adults jump in and do the resuscitation. Long marriages don't make it because we just kind of waited to be in love again. Well, no, you'll end your marriage as you probably need to. Or you'll do the work to go, I'm doing CPR on this thing and I'm not stopping because this has got to be revived. Here's the question. Do you want your faith revived? Do you want to do more than live in a deconstructed state where everything is questioned? And if everything is questioned, you know, C.S. Lewis said, the point of the window is that the garden is opaque. It can't be seen. He goes on to say, if you go through, if you go on in life seeing through everything, there's nothing to be seen. If all you're doing with your faith is questioning everything, but never trying to revive something, then you'll be left with no faith when you're done. But if you're willing to question things and then let God give you responses, then you can start the work of trying to revive something. And I love it. It's in Psalm 37. I'm going to give you a couple of things. What's so great for me about Psalm 37 is this is one of those early passages, passages when I was a kid. I used to read every day. I loved Psalm 37. Memorized it. And to this day, it's one of those things like that just sits in the back of my head. This passage. And I'd encourage you, if you've never really spent a lot of time with it, do. And a couple of things I just want to bring out to you that I think is important, that if we're going to learn how to revive fidelity, revive a walk with God, I think it takes a couple of things for sure out of here that I want you to see. The first is, I want you to notice, if you were to, and when you were to read this, we'll put it on the screen here, there are three times in 10 verses it says this, fret not yourself because of evildoers, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Now, the word fret would be like, don't get yourself in a hissy fit, right? Like, don't get yourself worked up. And like, some of us in this room, like, love getting worked up, right? Like, I'm so worked up, this isn't, you know, like, I'm one of those people. And what he's saying is, listen, don't get yourself so worked up over everything else happening around you. What, what the psalmist is saying is, don't compare your life to another's life. Because the more you do that, the more you'll get fretting. The more you'll get not only anxious, but out of control. And this is like very common psychology 101, right? Like taking, comparing your insides to the person's outsides, and therefore you're always trying to match that person, but you find that you're just being crushed under the weight psychologically within your soul of what you can't do. And all you want to do is give it to God and go, this is your fault. The more you compare yourself with other people, the more your faith will not be revived. 
Just put it very bluntly. The more you compare yourself with other people and their lives in this room, outside of this room, the least chance your faith has a chance of making it. But the second thing that's important here, it says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And I love how straightforward this is. Because if you're going to live in this space and revive fidelity, if you're going to live in this space and hope that God can meet you in the space between the promise and the actual reality and providence of it, that sometimes the best you can do is trust God with what you can trust God with and do the next right thing in front of you. I know it's just profound wisdom there, right? But there's nothing better any book or any person can give you than that. Sometimes all we can do is trust God. Now, if you can't trust God, question God and deal with that. But the best you can do is simply trust God and do the right thing in front of you. And then I love the next part. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Don't leave where you are. Double down. Another way a translation talks about for friend faithfulness is cultivate faithfulness, which means you got to tend to the ground around you. Your lot may only be five by five, and all you see is the world shrieking in on you. Well, friend, you can't control that. Neither can I. But what you can do is like tend to the ground that you're on. So what does it mean for you to tend to your little five by five lot as you're waiting for God to come and expand that? What does it mean for you to cultivate faithfulness? What does it mean for you to connect with others in this room? What does it mean for you to do these practices that we have on the back of these scripture reading plans and to go, what does it mean for you to practice this kind of life of, of choosing presence and seeking health and cultivating spirituality and how do I do these things? Your life will not change until you actually do some work in your life. And then here's what I love, the last part, we'll stop here. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now listen, when you want to do the work around questioning God, remembering what is true, reviving your fidelity to God, that's a process where eventually you find yourself becoming, and this is the word in the Hebrew that it works with, it's not just delight, it's, I had to, I had to write it down here, it's becoming soft, Think about this. What it's saying is, you ever have like a sweet little dog, sweet little puppy, and they come to you, they kind of just roll on their back? You know, what they're, what they're saying is like, I just, I want some love. I trust you. Like, here I am. You're going to rub the belly or not? What are we going to do? The same is true with God. At some point in time, we have to be willing to surrender again. In 12-step recovery, they talk about this. You come to a point where you surrender your life and will over to the care of God as you understood him. So what does it mean for you to surrender and become soft again? Because here's what happens in the softness with God. You actually find your, de your desires are met. And I don't mean like God's desires become your desires. Maybe. But this isn't reverse psychology from God. I think it has more to do with when you surrender in time, you get what God is wanting to give you. And you can stay in that space until then. And what we know is, is that no one became softer than Jesus himself.
And this is why we now come to the table. Because at this table, we're reminded of the softness of God, the surrender of God, so that others now could have an example of what real surrender and not just submission looks like, and real love, real tenderness while we wait in the space. Let's pray. So God, now we come before you, we come to your table, and we ask that you would meet us here, and we would know truly that you are here through your presence, that we'd be able to sense your presence. And that as we bring the things this morning that we thought about, that we long for, close our eyes around, I pray that we would find in this room almost like a an alleviation of that burden and knowing that we can question, we can wrestle, um, and we can revive what it is that we still have and trust that you will meet us in our needs. In name we pray, amen.